welcome to Wobblies and Wizards. I am your host, Loga the Barbarian. And my guest today is Lex Mandrake, the creator of Sea of Mirror. Welcome, Lex. Oh, thanks for having me, Logar. Man, I love the show. It's so well, good. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. It's good to hear that. <laughs> it makes me happy. I, I'm a big fan of Karen. And this is a, I'm, I'm getting this right. This is a setting for Karen, essentially, yep. that you're putting out, correct? Yep, just a little setting guide. Uh, it is, as you said, Sea of Mirror. And it is, I mean, the easiest way to describe it is to say it's based off a cartoon from the early 90s. <laughs> what, what cartoon? Uh, Pirates of Dark Water. If anyone ah, has ever checked that out, it's I remember heavily. that. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. I didn't, I didn't catch on to that first. I didn't realize that Pirates of Dark Water. They had little action figures too, didn't they? Yeah, they did. I and remember the, that. <laughs> you could get the ship and it had like, missiles that it could fire and stuff oh what a time to be alive <laughs> i don't i'll be honest i don't remember watching it too much when the 90s when was that out i feel like the ni- 90s was around the time yeah that was like 91 92 and it only lasted for a season so like oh. to be fair to people who missed it right <laughs> it wasn't on the air for very long and you watch it and it's like the first five episodes are solid great storytelling and then you hit episode six and you're like, oh, this is why this show didn't get a second season. This, everything goes way downhill really fast. But uh, but still very cool like world. I think it's Hanna-Barbera that made that. So it, it has kind of that same cool off the wall world building feel that you get from previous work they did like Thundar the Barbarian, right? Oh, yeah. And it's great. It, it's just a show that I found the world building in it really captivating and a lot of the character design and stuff. So I was always like, I need to like do something that pays homage to this. And I met Yohai. Uh, he lives, um, he used to live in the same town as me. And then I moved. But he still lives like a half an hour from me. Uh, And he's a super cool guy. And he was like, oh, you got to check out my game. I read through it. I thought it was great. I I ran a little bit of it. And I thought, this is perfect. This is the opportunity I've been looking for to make the setting for something. So I started putting that together. And I mean, that's I'm drawing inspiration from a couple other places. Uh, I think the big things are... Wind Waker, a lot of the way that that game handles sort of the world map and stuff are things I'm going to be emulating with the full version of this project. Which game was that? Wind Wind, Wind Waker? Yeah, Legend of Zelda Wind Waker for the GameCube. Oh, a bit, mm-hmm. I, I know very little about video games, so you might have to explain the, that stuff to me a little <laughs> bit when you bring it up. I was thinking of a role-playing game. I, no, I'm ignorant uh, in that region. That that's fine. I mean, a lot of people a lot of people miss the GameCube era, the <laughs> lunchbox era. It's totally fair. The uh, <laughs> but Wind Waker is the Zelda game in which you're on an archipelago and you're traveling around in your boat and go into different islands and like different islands or different dungeons and stuff. It's, it's very cool. It's a great, great Zelda game. Um, it also pioneered the cell shaded graphics thing in video games that we came to see a so lot more the, later on. What's a cell shaded graphics? Exactly. Oh, it's, it's graphics that uh, are designed to look, I mean, a little more cartoony, I think. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, so stuff that game does with the way it's world map works is I thought was like really, really interesting. So this game, the final version of this product is going to emulate some of that with some uh, generation tables uh, rather than having its own world map. It's like you generate islands or different locations that you're going to encounter in the archipelago. 
and uh, and the last big inspiration is uh, Le Guin's Earthsea series of books. Oh yeah, I love Ursula K. Le Guin. Oh, it's so good. He's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so good. So, uh, so yeah, there's a lot. There's some of that, especially a lot of the the magical influence in Sea of Myrrh is really really inspired by Le Guin's magic stuff. Well, her magic stuff was really focused around magic words, like words of magic, if I'm remembering yeah, correctly, yeah. in those Earth true, books. True names, names of power, and also uh, the kinds of supernatural creatures. Like, the thing I always think of from Wizard of Earthsea is the shadow that is, you know, following the character all the time. So I was like, I just, I want to make a, a monster that's straight up just an homage to that. Uh, and I wrote that yesterday uh, <laughs> depending true. on when this is airing that'll probably be added to the to the demo of the the game that you can get now uh over on itch i yeah i love ursula k Le Guin. i'm just gonna throw that out there like like not just earthsea just all around she was a wonderful human being she had wonderful things to say all around just so <laughs> that's my big plug ursula k Le Guin, awesome human being <laughs> yeah for sure so you're currently crowdfunding this on itch Mm-hmm. So we're looking at what what is it we're going to we're going to see as a final product here. Well, so yeah, what this is going to be when finished hopefully, assuming I get to my goal, right? Is <laughs> it's going to be character options, uh equipment, background stuff, uh magic, a bunch of different spells and items. And then then that's for the players and then for the game masters you have stuff like a bunch of monsters and then a lot of generators for creating like islands and worlds places for the characters to explore um creating npc motivations that's something i've dealt with in other projects that i really like doing and also one of the stretch goals is uh, dungeon generation which is an, another one of the big zelda influences i like the island generator stuff that's that sounds cool. I, I want to know a little more about what's in store for the island generation. Like what kind of stuff are we looking at here? Okay. So this is my, my broad strokes. My outline of it <laughs> right now is it's a 2d6 and it's a grid. Uh, and the idea is you roll like a one and a five. And that means you go like one across and five down on the grid. And it's like, okay, this is a location on the archipelago that there's a thing and you mark it down and you do that six times or so and you get six different locations and then you go into sub tables that are like okay well what kind of location do you want this to be and you roll randomly is it like oh is it a settlement like an island that has a port town on it or is it uh, a desert island or is it a coral reef or is it a sargasso like forest or all these kind of other um, oceanic type locations and then you generate that and then each of those has a little sub table that's like this is the kind of like cool supernatural or other weird hook that this location has that if they go there the adventures are going to run into and after you've done that you've basically just generated your world map and then you you look at it and you say okay well each square on the grid is a day's worth of travel time by sea on your ship so if the adventures adventures then get a treasure map which there's also going to be a generator for when hopefully if i get enough money <laughs> uh, then that tells you oh, okay well you need to like choose these locations on your map and then those are the places you have to go to find more clues as to the final location of the treasure so hopefully the end result is 
the the GM is has all the stuff generated for them. And then the adventures are sailing all over this world that has been created before the game started to find find the X. My X marks the spot. It's it's very hex crawl sound, which mm-hmm. I which I love that kind of stuff. I think yeah. it's great. I I appreciate it. <laughs> so when you're setting up, so how much of the world is defined in this as a setting guide, and how much of it is just kind of because I noticed one thing with like things like the influence of Into the Odd in games and a lot of these games is that the world isn't as defined by like like the way it was when TSR was putting out a giant tome telling you everything about the history or how like Frog God puts out a giant tome. It's got like 6,000 pages of world history, but <laughs> we're founding it through the other way. So I'm curious where, where it is you're lying along that spectrum of, of, of a world that you've created. Yeah, yeah, much lighter, right? I think that's one of the big advantages to the OSR and like a lot of minimalist gaming stuff is you can be like, oh, we don't need to have every nook and cranny detailed, but we can imply a lot of stuff through the setting and through other tables that we've created. And that's part of my uh, aim here for a couple of reasons. One, because I wanted this to be a smaller like side project. I didn't want to spend like a huge amount of time on this, right? And I thought, oh, well, if it's a bunch of tables and we're kind of jettering the world every time we start a campaign, then I don't need to write this. I don't need to make a world map. I don't need to write all this history about everything. I just basically go, okay, these are the kind of peoples that live there and this is kind of their deal. And these are the kind of monsters and these are the kinds of locations, but I don't want to get more specific than that because I don't, it's it's not that kind of product, you know? Yeah, I... I I actually like both kinds. Sure. But, but like after going through and seeing a lot of this stuff that's out now, especially like like that follows what into the odd did, where like what you're talking about, where you've got the world being built through through um, monsters, locations, random things you're gonna roll up, equipment and everything else. I'm fascinated with that. It's like the coolest discovery in role playing. I, I'm a fan of it. It's a cool yeah, way to no, approach it. The, yeah, the OSR does that so well. It's very cool. There's all sorts of great games that do that. And uh, th- that actually reminds me. So you had uh, Chris Williams on your show before. Yes. See, I told you I was a fan. <laughs> so I was Chris Williams episode this morning. And, uh, and I'm actually doing two different pieces for two of his zines that he is crowdfunding. Oh, so, yes. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So The Serpent's Eye, which is an essay on using fiction and like flavor text in world building is something I'm writing and need to send to him as soon as possible. <laughs> And the the other one that actually is finished or like 90% done is for his 5e book, uh, though I think it's largely system agnostic or you could use it for whatever, is called Sorceries of the Ameth- no, Sorceries of the Prismatic Veil. And it is a sort of Jack Vance style micro setting based off of Rialto the Marvelous. I had read that whole series of stories and I was like, I'm going to make a micro setting that's just about really, really haughty wizards who are super (laughs) full of themselves and very powerful. Uh, So the way that works, and it's like two pages, right? It's, It's just like, hey, this is the location, broadly speaking. And then here are some tables to generate magicians and their motivations and the kind of manses that they live in and the weird quirks that they have and then here's tables to generate the kinds of spells that they cast 
and a couple other weird things about the world. Like there's an insult generator because that's like <laughs> I love that. the mindset of these people. <laughs> that's um, great. That's great. The insult generator. That's amazing. So, so that people are going to see that when those uh, zines come out, which I'm really excited about because I think that's really fun. But yeah, that kind of stuff I love doing because it's, it's fun. It's quick. It's easy. It's great like at the table for a, a game master to do. But as you were speaking to earlier, the older, the TSR stuff where they're giving you a map, they're filling in everything. It's like, you know, the the trade routes or the like <laughs> percentage of wheat that this town harvests and supplies to the kingdom every year. Uh, I am fascinated by that kind of stuff. I did a project, came out a couple months ago on DMs Guild, where I took a section of the Forgotten Realms called Narfel, and the project is called Narfel, which is like a demon-haunted Arctic tundra. And I took, and I dug through all these TSR books, because that's basically where it's from. It's not a lot of it in the post-TSR days. And I just took all of that info and then condensed it all way down and like got a region map commissioned and did all of these like expanded um, locations with random encounter tables and all this stuff. And I think it came out super well, but that's like, you know, that's my homage to that kind of world building because it's also fun. It's great. It's great to do that stuff too. I'll be honest. And you even say the post the post TSR days. I think the vast majority of my Dungeons and Dragons like legit branded books are TSR. I do have some third edition, and the Christmas before last, I I got some gift cards and I picked up a couple of fifth edition books on from Target and Walmart. But I I don't have much that was well, isn't TSR to be honest. <laughs> I got a lot of TSR stuff. <laughs> the advantage to TSR, right, is they were throwing out so much content that it was impossible you weren't going to get like oh, yeah. some real gems in there because there was just so much. But like even if you're looking at uh, Watsy stuff and you're really into world building, some of the third edition um, splat books for Forgotten Realms, like the, the Serpent Kingdom is, is really good. There's a bunch of other random like specific stuff. Um Lost Empires of Faerun is really good. Uh, that was coming out like in the mid-aughts. There's some oh, yeah. stuff that's totally worth checking out in there. Well, when third came out, mm -hmm. I, I I like I was there day one when the player manual came oh, out. Yeah. When I tried to launch this campaign, I still didn't have a monster manual, but I got that creature collection that came out before. And I and we ran this little campaign and it was all right. It was good. I enjoyed it. I had fun. I it wasn't 3.5 yet. When 3.5 came out, I was like, I, I can't, I can't spend that much money for new books. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I can't do this again. But what I started doing was I started just buying up the rest of the AD and D stuff that was showing up at half price and everywhere else because it was dirt cheap. Exactly. That's, right. That that's, and that's and that's also the thing we're seeing with third edition now is now those books are super cheap by and large. There are some exceptions, right? But by and large, a lot of those books are dirt cheap and you're starting to find that Wizards is doing um, PDFs of a lot of that older stuff, both the TSR stuff and the third edition stuff. Oh, yeah. And it's just, so it's way more accessible now than it ever was. But yeah, at the time it was like, this is so much money. <laughs> I can't do it. Yeah, I, I just couldn't at the time, but I was like thrilled because like, and my brother worked at a half price at one point in time mm -hmm. and he would get half price off a of half price. I'm like, Hey man, 
they give me that book. It was originally 12 bucks. Now it's like 650. Now I got four bucks. I'm like, three, four. Like I was getting them for dirt cheap sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I should probably shouldn't have said that. I don't think that's that's the whole thing they were allowed to do, but that was that was 20 years ago. (laughs) You did that to your brother. He's never gonna get a job again. (laughs) He's fired. He's fired. Yeah, well, GURPS books I've been picking up lately, cheap here and there. I had more than I did at one point, just books in general. I sold off so many over the years because I have to move. Mm-hmm. And what I started doing was I started I started going to the grocery store and getting paper bags, like regular shopping bags. And I would fill those up with books because boxes got so heavy. And I'd make these brick walls of books that we'd have to stack inside of like whatever moving truck. And one of my ex-wives at some point in time got frustrated with these brick walls of paper bag books. Why? <laughs> we would have, well, at my apartment, we had like, I probably have, I don't think I have quite, maybe I do have 10 or 11 bookshelves down here now filled with books. And that's just books, period. Uh, at least five of them are game books. <laughs> and I, I've decided that's my thing. I'm collect. Um, there was a point to this. Oh, but at my apartment before then, before I, when I started selling all those books, like I had the same amount in my living room. And then I had this huge, large closet area underneath a stairwell that was just boxes of books piled. And a lot of those books got sold off. And it's like, I got to move. And I had these gigantic boxes. That's when I started going for the paper bag. So a lot of those game books got taken to wherever. It's like, I can't carry these cross country there's a ton of stuff I lost doing that. Oof. Some of it I rebought over the year. Let me, I'm not hurting for game books. <laughs> no, I can see your webcam. I think you're fine. <laughs> well, these are actually the ones behind me. The ones that are on this side of the, the room are all just like, honestly, they're all mostly nonfiction. I'm really into, uh-huh. into like philosophy, sociology, history, stuff like that. That's what I read a large amount of. But one of the things, like, I'm going to tie this back to what we were saying earlier with those big tomes of all that stuff and that world building stuff. When I started running Forbidden Lands, it was so minimal compared to some of the things I was used to reading. And when I was prepping for game, I started missing reading these giant walls of text in those books mm. for game after <laughs> discovering it. So I love the minimal preparation stuff. At the same time, I crave these giant tomes of of books to 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 what's the word i'm looking through to get lost in <laughs> yeah to spark inspiration right that's what you get from a lot of those books right because uh, there's definitely like i was saying uh earlier the tsr days right there is so many books coming out and i think a lot of those like maybe i'd read them because they had a cool cover but when i actually sat down to read them i'd be like oh like of this is super dry and boring and I'm not interested, (laughs) but, but there's some gems. There's some interesting ideas in here. And I mean, again, just to speak to setting rather than, and separate that from system entirely. You had mentioned GURPS. I don't know too much about GURPS, but freaking riffs. Oh, like again, (laughs) separating setting from system. Not, was not interested in the the system that I run riffs with. I uh, run riffs every other Saturday night. I've had to, I've had to make my own adjustments to it. Really. Like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, but I've, so I, Palladium was what we played predominantly in the nineties. So mm. I know those books like the back of my hands. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't question it much back then. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's like, it worked really well with, if you're just playing Palladium fantasy or you're playing like 
like just I don't know what were some of the other systems. They do Robotech. They did Robotech. They did right? Robotech Turtles. Oh, it's yeah, they tons. did Turtles. Oh, that was great. Uh, but but then when you try and do riffs and it mixes a bunch of the different ideas from the different things, you're like, oh, these aren't balanced with each other at all. <laughs> no. This doesn't work. But okay, but putting that There's aside, no balance. <laughs> the setting stuff, especially in the core riffs book, is so cool. Not even because like like to it's all super well written but because all of the ideas that they're playing with are so interesting and it just makes you be like oh i want to write a campaign for this i want to do like my own little corner of this world that i want to flesh out or something like that because it's oh man so such cool world building in that i've got at least three shelves over there that are just palladium books and the top two are just the top two of those, I think, are, oh, maybe there's more, <laughs> are just the Riffs books. And there was a point in time when I got so many Riffs books, it became overwhelming. And I just sat there and read through the original, just just the uh, the original Riffs book that came up before the Ultimate Edition. And I, I saw how much information was in that just small. It wasn't that big of an area for world information, but the ideas seated in there. And I said, you know what? I, I could run an entire campaign off of just what's here. I don't need a single world book to run this. There's so much there. And if you branch out to those other books, there's so much more. It's like, ah, so what, what I've done and the one I've been reading is I've taken it back to the original books. And I've, I've pulled out the first couple source books. I pulled out uh, Vampire Kingdoms and I've pulled out the original Rift source book in Atlantis. Atlantis was only peppered in there as a, as oh this is a place to go, mm-hmm. and I've just been using those earlier books so far, kind of touching on the classics. It's been fun. My group keeps on coming back; they love it. And like I said, I'm kind of running it much more streamlined than it's written, and that a lot of folks would run it. And it depends on your game group, but my game group seems to like running it streamlined. They have I've had no complaints about it, so. <laughs> totally. I mean, like, you know, the mark of a good setting is how like someone can just hear the elevator pitch of it and be like, oh, I have <laughs> I have ideas now about this this setting. So like I was just watching a video on the um the TSR Mistara setting, specifically yes. the hollow earth thing they did for it. And I was like, oh, it's like dinosaurs and different like <laughs> like um pre like uh steel like cultures and stuff that are all meshed together and they're like immortals that run everything that's so interesting and uh also like the way a lot of the stuff goodman games has done like um peril on the purple planet that setting so cool and uh their lankmar their version of lankmar is great uh, i'm really excited for their jack vance setting the dying their dying earth setting and uh, what was the other thing they did that I really liked? Their, their Hollow Earth, the Agartha, I think it's called. That one I have... don't remember. I'm not familiar with that one. We did play Chained Coffin, and there was a few others we played through when we did DCC. Mm. Um, I don't think we got to a lot of those other ones. We didn't get to the Purple Planet. I know that because uh, I want I want that purple plant. I don't have oh, that, good. but it's, it's, it's cool. <laughs> I got that box set. Oh, it's good. It's so good. Uh, but but yeah, Chain Coffin is like fantasy Appalachia, right? Wasn't that? I haven't read it, but I've just heard about it. So yeah, I just learned about him. You know what? I'm going to have to go to the Google while we're on here talking about this because sure. this guy's okay. really cool. So I am not a Southern boy. 
I'm not. My family didn't come from Appalachia or anything like that. But I'm pretty Midwestern. My mm. father actually was born in my, my grandmother was born in France. My father was born in Cambridge, England. <laughs> and she, they left. She, this was all happening while fleeing Hitler's invasion of Germany. Mm-hmm. But they settled in very rural Midwestern America. So everybody I knew was very, uh, when we moved to Cincinnati, especially my, my better half, is she grew up in straight, deep Appalachian hills. So I have this affinity towards Appalachia and folks from that area and those coal mines. So this this chain coffin, I thought was cool. Um, What was his name? So he was a pulp writer back in the day. Mm -hmm. And he was like like a like kind of along the lines of like Lovecraft and, and Howard and them. But he said a lot of his stuff in Appalachia and. I, I wish I could uh, remember his name. It should be in there. Manly Wade Wellman. Yes, that's it. Yes, Manly Wade Wellman. I no, I'm not familiar with his work, but that's cool. I wasn't either till we started playing it. And the guy that ran it is he's actually the the youngest one of the group or our game group. And he was new to DCC and started running it. But he got that and he started reading those and telling. And I discovered all about Manly. Manly, was it Wade Wellman? Yes. And I discovered all about him. I'm fascinated. I'm trying to find his books, but his books are like really hard to find, to be oh, honest. They don't. It's too bad. They are. They sell for quite a bit. There's not a lot of stuff of his out there. He wasn't one of those like Lovecraft who had like a boom in the 90s mm-hmm. after the after the Call of Cthulhu came out and they started putting out paperbacks and stuff like that. He missed all that. And, and Howard, you know, everybody knows how like Conan's have had a lot of reprints and other people continued the stories. Well, none of his stuff really made it there. So it's hard to find. I think probably easier to find it digital than it is in print. Mm. But I was looking around a bit and yeah, there, there isn't too much out there, but it's cool. And an Appalachian fantasy approach was interesting the way they did it. I thought it was neat. <laughs> we had a fun game. Yeah, no, I think that it's always awesome when anyone who's into RPGs like just wants to expand their horizons to different kinds of settings. Like the the standard fantasy fair is fine and like standard sci-fi is fine, but there's such it's so much more fun when you find like a really weird setting that's <laughs> like really speaks to you, right? <laughs> the, um there was one I was going to talk about and now it's gone out of my head. It was something that was published. Uh, oh, now I remember. Okay, speaking of Lovecraft, that's what reminded me of this. I just grabbed a digital copy of The Fall of Delta Green by Pelgrane Press. Yes. Yeah, and I am very taken with that. Like the idea that you have this Lovecraft stuff, but you pair that with like Vietnam and all of like that late 60s and psychedelic rock. I'm just like, man, this is such a cool idea. It's just so different and so interesting. Uh, I'm very excited to run that. And uh, yeah, and like uh, one of my friends asked me the other day, well, I said to them like, hey, I need to run a game for you because we've been friends for a long time and we've played in one shots together, but I never run anything for you. I want to do that. Uh, and they said to me, or, and I said to them, like, what do you want to play in? Like, what kind of game? And they were saying like, oh, I've really been itching to play space opera recently and i thought like oof yes that's great so i'm like rolling up my sleeves and i'm looking into all of the things that george lucas listed as inspiration for star wars and then after that maybe i'll look at star wars but like <laughs> the flash gordon serials 
the samurai oh, films, man. all that stuff. And I'm like, yes, I'm going to create a space opera using all this. It's going to be great. <laughs> so, yeah. Expand your setting horizons, I think, is my main thing from this. Like, look at other weird stuff. You'll find such cool things out there. It's Ken. um, What's his name? I can't can't remember his last name. His first name is Ken. He did a a game over with Cubicle 7 called called Rocket Age, I believe it's called. That's very much like 19. It's like the it's like the um, Flash Gordon ish, I want to say, but it's sci fi from you know the era of the old serials and stuff they used to do when those flash gordons came out when i was growing up like those old black and white serials they used to run on and the theaters we had those on vhs and i watched that kind of crap all the time i loved that stuff that's the kind of stuff i got into in fact here's the thing about me people really like uh mystery science theater 3000 and i've Mm -hmm. i've learned to like stop disliking things but i was really upset when i first found mystery science theater 3000 because they were making fun of some movies i really got into and i owned and i was i was taking this personally i was, I was a nerd well i i didn't i never got upset about it but there were definitely a few mst3k episodes that i watched and i was like I'm going to go and find the movie that they're talking over so I can watch it without their commentary. Cause I just want to watch this movie like straight, right? <laughs> Cause there's cool stuff. There's such weird, odd things out there, especially in B movies. Oh yeah. My mother was, was really into B flicks. And so I was raised on that as a kid. That was one thing I can attribute my parents, parents quirks. I just thought everybody sat around watching these weird old sci-fi and horror movies from back in the day. I thought that was normal. My parents were pretty vanilla overall. My daddy was a Baptist preacher. Like it was not the folks you expect to sit around watching this stuff. But they got me into it. You know, my mother introduced me to Peter Cushing and 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 Christopher Lee. All that stuff was the stuff I grew up on. Was what my mother was into and she was young and she brought me up on that stuff. I wasn't around when most of those Hammer films were made back in the day, but I had a huge extensive VHS collection of Hammer horror films oh, when I was young. Oh, ham- the Hammer stuff is so good. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was furloughed for like a couple months. And I just thought, you know what? This is a good opportunity to do. Watch like every freaking Hammer movie. <laughs> <laughs> or the ones that I hadn't seen, because I had seen some of the, like the main ones, right? Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolf, oh, yeah. uh, Mummy. And yeah, I watched like a bunch of them and man, there's some cool stuff. The Devil Rides Out. Oh, that movie's yeah. so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. Uh, but but yeah, so uh, that also reminds me, bring it back to RPGs. I haven't played it or read it yet, but it is on my list. Uh, this game by oh, Jason Cordova, I think is his name. That's probably mispronounced. Uh, called The In-Between or The Between. Is it the between the in between? I should look it up. Uh, but it is based off of it's like Penny Dreadful. If you ever saw the Penny Dreadful, oh, yeah, I'm a, uh, yes. Showtime series, yeah, it's, it's basically that the RPG. <laughs> and I'm I just saw it and I'm like, I gotta check this out because, like, man, that sounds like a fun RPG to play. <laughs> well, what's cool about the, the old hammer horror flicks, and, and this is like later on, like they're stuck in a time that almost doesn't exist. It's like mm-hmm. almost modern, but it is almost medieval. And it's like, it's hard to pin, pin, put your finger on what's going on here. Cause they're, they're not quite accomplishing the historical accuracy of it. It's still the sixties and seventies at the end of it. And 
when I first played Ravenloft, because actually 1993 was the first time I ever played D&D because I had played all sci-fi and superhero games up to then. And my buddy had the Ravenloft box and we pulled it out. Like that hammer horror flick world was what I saw. I'm like, this is great. This is like hammer horror. I'm like yeah. Peter Cushing. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I liked Ravenloft because it reminded me in my mind when I was imagining them, what I would always imagine is those old hammer horror flicks. Dracula getting spoked by the, the wooden wheel tire <laughs> and stuff like that. Oh, I love it. That was always fun to me. I got into yeah. that. <laughs> Man, the like one of the things TSR was really good at was um especially in like the late 80s, early 90s, was just establishing these settings that had like really distinctive, interesting flavor to them. So Ravenloft, they did such a good job with that, especially with the art direction on it. So good. And then obviously the the very often talked about Dark Sun was oh, very I cool. Love it. And <laughs> like, <laughs> and like yes. Spelljammer is super silly, but also really fun. Uh, and what were some of the other ones they were doing? Uh, Planescape came a little Planescape later. That was, was really interesting. Planescape was interesting. We definitely played a lot. Of, I, I tore out a lot more from the manual of the planes. We got into some mm. Planescape stuff over the years because I like to hop from plane to plane to weird dimensions yeah, in games. For sure. <laughs> uh, and like, yeah, like I was reading Troika uh, more recently. Uh, and I was like, you know, this feels like a little zanier, but like a very like the modern version of Planescape and it doesn't yeah. have all the trappings of AD&D mechanically that like I felt like got in the way of a lot of that stuff. Oh yeah. Like, and that was my biggest problem with the Ravenloft box set from the, the early nineties or the late eighties was I, I loved it. But again, it just felt like a lot of the crunch of second edition just felt like it got in the way. And I was always like, I just wish I had a different, I was playing this with a different system and <laughs> the foolish child i was at the time was like but i can't because that's what it's published in. now that i'm an adult i'm like oh no i could just run this in whatever system i want <laughs> it's, it's fine well we're coming up on time real quick i'd like you to tell our listeners where they can find your stuff and where they can back uh sea of mirror so yeah i'm uh i am dank dungeons uh, on a lot of social media, specifically Twitter. So at Dank Dungeons on Twitter. On there, you will find a link tree, which will send you to my DMs Guild page, my uh, Itch page, my Bandcamp page, because I make music sometimes and then make RPGs to go with them. That's fun. Uh, and, and yeah, all the different stuff that I do. So follow me on there for product updates. And yeah, Backsea of Mirror on uh, itch we're trying to get to five hundred dollars and i'm hoping that we get there and then we can get all sorts of great art as always if you've enjoyed what you've heard here today please share on social media tell your friends about us and give us a positive review those of you who have given us positive reviews thank you so much i really appreciate it you can find us on facebook just search wobblies and wizards we're pretty active there we'll probably respond i'm on twitter at logar hail prom we started doing a patreon takes a bit of money and time out of our, our out of our lives so if you appreciate having a daily podcast about role-playing games please support us however you can patreon.com backslash wobblies and wizards and as always keep those dice rolling